On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be asking a question about why it is that politicians love to tell us that we're all in this together, and yet none of them have taken pay cuts even to show some leadership and that they really are in it because there's a whole lot of people that are suffering right now. Why have no politicians done this? We're going to be chatting about the Commonwealth Games bid that Hamilton may or may not be making from someone who you would expect, I think, would be a champion of this and may in fact be, but is offering caution. Anyway, we'll talk about that one. Mike Fortune will join us talking about, well, COVID because he's been doing these town hall meetings for weeks and weeks and weeks now. What has he learned? And we will talk about little Napoleon Bonaparte. And if you don't know what I mean, I mean, little Napoleon Bonaparte, not Napoleon, little Napoleon. You'll get it. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I heard a politician today and for the life of me, I can't remember who or where or what level of politics, but it was, I know it was a politician. Utter the words that at this point make my eyes roll back in my head and my blood pressure spike and smoke come out of my ears. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. It's such a, a lovely, cuddly, kind of embracing kind of thing. And I swear it was a nice enough song in High School Musical when, I had, when my kids were young and I used to watch that movie with them all the time. But as a slogan for politicians to utter, I tell you what, it absolutely sucks. And I'll tell you why. We are not all in this together. And I'm sorry if that's bursting your kumbaya, free to be you and me, whatever bubble, but we are not all in this together. Because if you work in the private sector, you have probably put in extra hours if you're still able to work because you may be laid off at this point, or you may have taken a pay cut, or you may be scrambling to try and keep your business going because of the challenges that are facing you. And then you look at the people in the public sector, the employees there, and you say, well, wait a second, where are the public sector workers who have taken a pay cut or taken time off, been laid off, been furloughed, been whatever? It doesn't seem like we're all in this together. And then where are the politicians leading by example in a world right now, in a country right now, where we now have a $1 trillion debt? Where are the politicians? who are leading by example and voluntarily taking a pay cut, even only as a ceremonial offering to show that when they say we're all in this together, that they really mean it. Aaron Woodrick is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He joins me now. Aaron, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, am I the only one who is sitting here grinding my teeth when I hear that saying and thinking, no, we're not really all in this together? And I got to tell you, judging by what comes into my email box and the voicemails I get, you're certainly not the only one. And I think it's funny because you're right that that phrase that we're all in this and together, you know, it, it can be interpreted a bunch of ways, right? Yeah, it's true. We're all here and we all have to go through it together, but we're not all feeling it together. and We're not all experiencing it. I guess Prime Minister Trudeau once said you, people experience things differently. Well, certainly people who work in the private sector are feeling this, experiencing this very differently than some of the more, uh, the more privileged counterparts who are working in government right now. Yeah, I, look, I'm not suggesting for a moment that every public employee is working less now or not working as hard, or if they're at home that they're not pulling their weight. I, I, I'm not suggesting that. We know that's not true, but some don't have as much to do. And some people we know, public sector workers, are home and they don't have really anything to do. And yet we're still paying them, as far as I can tell, 
I don't know any who aren't getting their full pay with their full benefits, which is vastly different with which is what from what's happening in the private sector. And I'm wondering when this happened. When did the tables become so tipped that one is a a, a, a part of the economy where you are really scrambling to get by potentially and the other is almost pretty gold plated? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you're you're also right to point out that there look there are people in government right now that are working extremely hard. They're doing absolutely. a great job. I, I don't mean to, to, to besmirch what they're doing, but you're also right in saying that there are people who work in government in areas where they, their departments have been closed and they are not doing any work through no fault of their own, but they are getting paid their full pay. And you know, the the obvious question is why is it why is it just understood that in the private sector, if you don't have a job to do, you're going to have, you may get laid off. You at least will take a pay. I mean, uh, full disclosure, I work for a nonprofit. I had to take a pay cut because my organization had less revenue. That's just the way it works. When there's less money coming in, you can afford to pay less. With government, that does not seem to be very common, certainly not at the federal and provincial levels. I will say there are some municipalities across Canada where they have laid off. For example, if you work at a city-owned recreation centre, they've laid off staff there. And I think that's reasonable if it's temporary because we don't have the money to pay for these things. So, look, I think that uh, a lot of people in the private sector are frustrated. It's not about vindictiveness. It's about fairness and about if we all have to suffer, it's better that we spread the pain out so we all suffer a little bit rather than it being born being born entirely by people who work in the private sector. Well, Aaron, there's also the issue here that when this thing is done or, or we try to start getting back on our feet, uh, we know there are going to be tax increases somehow. That, that, that seems to me to be inevitable, that they're going to find new ways to tax us to try and claw out of where we are. And I don't see any suggestion that those who suffered through this and are now barely getting back into the economy are going to be given some sort of discount or some sort of break. They're still going to be half. So they're being nailed twice really here. Like if you want to say all the private sector people who lost income, we're going to give you a 50% off your taxes down the road. That's one thing, but that's not going to happen. Well, I don't know. I mean, certainly groups like ours are going to be making just that case. Uh, like, and, and I think there are broader ramifications than just helping individuals. The number one problem after this, after the immediate health crisis has passed, Scott, is that how are we going to get the economy back? It's not going to be a simple matter of flicking a switch. I think there's a strong case that if you do things, you look at small businesses that have been devastated by this crisis. What if we, for example, were to say for the next two years, no taxes for small business, something Good like luck. that. To, 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 well, look, I think there, I, I think you're right. Talk about you're stimulus, right. Yeah. It, it, look, there, there's going to be a huge deficit. I'm certainly not one to downplay that, but it's not going to do. We could cut government to the bone. If we don't get the economy going again, we're never going to be able to get back to balance. We're never going to be able to pay back this debt. So I think there's an argument that we need to find ways to uh, do whatever we can to get people who drive the economy back on their feet, uh, even if that means foregoing some revenue in the short term. I don't get the sense that we're all in this together. As Aaron said, yeah, technically, physically, we're all going through this, but we're not feeling this the same way because the public sector is being completely shielded and completely protected. And politicians, in my mind, shamefully have done nothing to step up, nothing to step up and show leadership by at least ceremonially taking a pay cut to show that they are feeling something as well. And Aaron, it, it, help me out with this one. This seems to me to be politics 101 that you could do something that makes you look like you are trying to feel the people's pain and trying to show that you're one of the people how has every single politician at least as far as i know in this country whiffed on this one 
Yeah, it's shocking. And, you know, we've seen examples of it even in Canada before, right? It gives you some more authority. If you're, you know, you're a new government, you need to make some spending reductions because the, the province or whatever is broke. Uh, you cut your own pay and then it makes a, you demonstrate that you're willing to go through the pain other people are. And, and right now, Scott, we're not asking for something. I mean, our organization has called for this for federal MPs. We've seen around the world. Uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, uh, who she's actually a good friend of Justin Trudeau, she announced she was cutting her own pay by 20% for the next six months and all of her cabinet and all of her top bureaucrats because she said, quote, she wanted to show solidarity and leadership. And I think that's exactly it. Japan, India, MPs there have cut their pay by 20, 30% for the next year. So this is happening in some places. And I'm shocked that here in Canada, no one has realized that it would send a really good signal uh, to people that politicians really get what we're going through and that they're actually willing to, to personally suffer some of the consequences like the rest of us. Except at this point, Aaron, if they do it, it looks like it's just because they were shamed into it and now it looks totally political. So now it's, it's meaningless that they do it now. This should have been done months ago. I agree. I still think there is some value in them doing it, and, and not, just for the, uh, not just for the solidarity. I think eventually we all know that uh, we are going to have to have cuts in government. There's simply no way that we're going to go through the next few years without any reductions. If, if politicians want to make it easier, if they want to make it easier when they're asking government employees to take a pay cut, you know, they would do well to cut their own pay now and say, look, I'm not asking you to do anything that, that I'm not going to do myself. Yeah, and I know um, how much people enjoy uh, a comment about Donald Trump that is not, you know, terrible and insulting and everything else. But if I recall correctly, he is taking a dollar a year. Now, I know he has lots of dough, but still, when Donald Trump is doing this kind of thing and you're not, um, (laughs) you know, sort that one out if you're a politician and why you haven't done this. But there, Aaron, there's another part of this too. Uh, There's a lot of parts to this. the suggestion that has been made at times that some public service workers should have some of their pay cut a little bit during this time, or that some people maybe should be let go because look, we're just, we don't have the money. If you say that words like heartless and thoughtless and unconscionable, those were all words that were used in Alberta when the Alberta provincial government tried to get rid of some people whose jobs didn't exist anymore. There was no work for them to do and they wanted to send them home and say, I'm sorry, it's a temporary layoff. They were called every horrible name. It, it, it's, it's, it just, it, you can't even suggest now that there could be cuts. Well, look, I, I think uh, if, you, if, if politicians have a bit of a spine, they can. This is since time immemorial. Any, anyone who's proposed a cut has been framed as heartless, as vicious. I mean, it's, it's not even a question of, of whether you're nice or not. It's about math. It's about arithmetic and whether there is money to pay. That's the reason that in the private sector, it's not a choice. If you have no money, you have to lay people off. So I think the real onus is on people who argue there should be no reductions. I mean, if you are in a government department that is not doing any work, why should you be getting paid still? That does not occur in the private sector. So I, I, I and for the reason that there's no money. So I don't understand why the rule would be any different in, gov- in government. Obviously, if you're still working, and as I mentioned before, many government employees are working very hard. Of course, you can continue to get paid. But if you're not working, just like in the private sector, perhaps you should not be getting paid or at least be taking a pay cut. And, and I don't even have an objection, truly, Aaron, and I don't know if you do or not. I have no objection to the, what Doug Ford has done with the increasing the pay a bit for the frontline medical workers, because it's the same in the private sector. If you're doing extra, if you're doing overtime, if you're doing, you get a bonus, I, that to me, I have no issue with. It, it, yeah, it works no. the same. No, it's, it's the law of supply and demand, right? Although I do find it interesting that we people seem to have no problem 
uh, with a, with an increase in pay uh, where it's warranted. When it comes to prices for things, you know, say you're a business that's selling something and the cost of, of providing that service or product goes up, there's there's a lot of hostility to an increase in the price of that, which seems to be, you know, it seems to be inconsistent with the fact that we recognize if it's a unique circumstance, we want to pay people more, that we should be paying them more. It is, um, it is something that uh, I, I, I hope Aaron's words and uh, people across this country's words resonate a bit. And I hope at some point, some of our politicians decide to show some of this leadership, even if it is leading from behind at this point, because it's pretty late. But um, yeah, I mean, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Um, Aaron Woodrick from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. Thanks a lot for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. In recent weeks, uh, if you have been listening to the show with any regularity, in recent weeks, a number of times, I've had Lou Fraporti on the show. He's a spokesman for the group that is trying to bring originally the 2030 Commonwealth Games. Now the bid has switched to be the 2026 Commonwealth Games to Hamilton. And I, I, I have thought, and I do think it's important to have him on to have an opportunity to explain the rationale behind the bid and how the bid would work because it is a big deal. These things are not small operations. It's a big deal that could have a very large impact on an awful lot of things in our city, depending on your point of view, for better, for worse, or somewhere in between. But I also think it's important on an issue like this to have both sides presented, uh, or at least the the skeptical side, or perhaps the cautious side, whatever word you wish to use here. Uh, my next guest might not be the guy that you would expect to be that person because he has been closely involved with sports in this community. You would think a sports guy is all for this. I, and even more maybe surprising, the sport that he's been involved in has been track and field, which is the, the blood of any multi-sports games. And yet... He is the voice of caution, I believe. His name is Kevin Gonsi. Uh, he is the co-chair of the Golden Horseshoe Track and Field Council. And this week, he wrote a report to Hamilton City Council about the Commonwealth Games and how they approach this. Kevin joins me now. Kevin, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Hi, thanks for having me on, Scott. I appreciate the call. Um, I, I clarified myself a moment ago when I was introducing you. I said you were representing the skeptics. Um, I don't think you're representing the skeptics as I read your report. That was a poor choice of words, but you are, as I understand it, certainly representing those who are urging caution with this. I think, yeah, thanks for the clarification on that. Uh, I'm by no way uh, representing any group uh, organization other than expressing comments and opinions of, of myself as a Hamilton taxpayer, born and raised here for over 50 years. Uh, these times have certainly changed this past year. Uh, I'm optimistic. Uh, I would be the first one to fully support a games uh, proposal once the full details and facts are, are fully available uh, for people to make an informed decision. And that was the rationale with my report uh, being submitted to uh, City Council. There will be some, I have no doubt, who are going to be a little bit surprised that someone with a background in track and field and who's still involved in track and field wouldn't be just thrilled to have the games no matter what the heck with the cost. I don't care what the cost is. Bring the games here because, you know, that we've, we've heard those kind of things before. Why are you not in that boat where you're saying, I don't care what it costs, bring them here because I love sports and I love track and field? Well, I, I've been described as somewhat of a realist, uh, for, for better or worse. I've never been the type to sit in a meeting or to sit by and be spoon-fed information. 
without first verifying the facts before I jump on board. Uh, if I look at it at a personal perspective, like if I go to buy a house or a major purchase like a house or a vehicle, I do my research. I go in with a list of questions to be prepared. If it doesn't sound right, then I, I don't sign the dotted line. And I would encourage counsel to seek the same due diligence process. If, if uh, you know, the facts don't add up from independent sources, then you need to consider those facts. And, uh, you know, I'll be supportive of city council either way, I think. But, I mean, I just don't jump on the bandwagon because of all the uh, uh, apparent benefits that they're going to be. I'll, I'll believe it once the uh, paperwork's done and I have a chance to look at all the facts. Well, I did look at your report. I read, read over your report. It was, it was 14 pages long and it was, it was very interesting. And one thing that is abundantly clear from what you pulled out, and it doesn't necessarily mean it would happen here, but it's abundantly clear that there is a boatload of evidence that games, Olympics, Commonwealth, whatever, rarely come in on the budget that was expected. No, and that's my concern up to this point. No, no, uh, disrespect to Hamilton media, but there's been a lot, a lot of positive strokes given as far as what all the benefits were. And I have to admit the uh, city staff report presentation of the General Issues Committee on February 19th, I was a bit underwhelmed uh, with the details. And in fact, it left me with more questions and answers. So I set out following that meeting to, to find uh, answers to questions based on previous games experiences and, and current games that are currently going forward, Birmingham being uh, one in particular for 2022. And, you know, there, there were some, some many benefits uh, stated, uh, a lot of information out there, but a lot of disinformation, whether intentional or not. A lot of these initiatives are brought forward with the best of intentions for community good and all the social benefits. Uh, but I mean, you really have to dig down deep as, as to what the risks are and who's going to assume those risks. In this case, it would be Hamilton taxpayers. Um, Kevin, in this report that you wrote, you pointed out the fact that these games rarely do come in on budget. Um, percentage wise, are there any that come in on budget? Well, I think there's been a few examples I quoted in my report that were actually positives. I think the uh, the number one uh, shining example was the uh, um, Gold Coast uh, 2018 Gold Coast Commonwealth Games that actually came in under budget. Um, you know, it, it's each each game's bid or proposal is is unique to the cities that submit the, uh, the the bids for these games. What I mean by that is some communities are better equipped for hosting competitions like this than others. In the case of the Gold Coast 2018 games, uh, I, I believe it was up to 80% of the infrastructure was already in place. So the cost overruns associated with the infrastructure development wasn't a major factor or an influence with the Commonwealth Games and, and the Gold Coast because the infrastructure was already there. As well, the, the positive for the Gold Coast example is uh, the Gold Coast region of Australia is known as probably one of the uh, uh, biggest uh, tourist attraction areas, uh, at least in Australia, if not the entire world. The games in 2018 were co-hosted in addition to the uh, uh, summer festival that's ha handled, uh, hosted there annually as well. So it's really hard to determine what the cost benefits were of the games versus the festival that was running in conjunction uh, with that. So 
if, if we look at Hamilton as a comparison, I think everyone's in agreement. We lack the infrastructure. Uh, we're, we're far behind. Some councils acknowledge we're far behind in, in some areas of infrastructure, sport and recreation, but social housing as well. Uh, that would uh, allow us the opportunity to just uh, walk in and host a game similar to what Australia did. But as well, you know, you got a question. The cities like uh, Victoria, the city of Toronto, Edmonton, Calgary, that all have uh, experience and, and facilities from hosting previous games, all passed up opportunities to host games for 2022 and 2026. So, I mean, uh, with the cost overruns, I mean, uh, there are contingency funds that are allocated to the budget, but I mean, are the contingency funds going to be enough? And the next question is, who's responsible for those cost overruns? Uh, traditionally, it's not the federal government, which means it's usually the municipal uh, taxpayers or provincial taxpayers that pick up the, those overruns. One of the things you mentioned infrastructure and certainly the folks who are behind this have made that a priority. This is a chance to improve our infrastructure. And I think there's a lot of people who say, okay, that's terrific. That's great. That's something we need. And, and I, and I agree with them. Here's the, the challenge that I see with this now, because we're now talking about the 2026 games and it would, that would leave us. You can't finish the day of the game starting. You have to have a lead time. Let's say four, four and a half years. That doesn't give us a whole lot of time to do a whole lot of infrastructure projects. You might fix some things up. You might be able to build a few things. On the one hand, it prevents us, I would think, from blowing our brains out with an amazing amount of money spent on these things because we don't have time to build them. On the other hand, is there a point to having the games if we can't do the infrastructure projects? You know what, to simply respond to that, I, I, I think if we can make it fiscally happen, I, I keep it within budget, uh, if we can make it happen, I think the benefits would weigh, outweigh uh, the, uh, the negative aspects of hosting the game, games, but we need, we need hard data, we need independent uh, data from, from sources, uh, I'm not going to say that, that, that are biased, but have... Uh, uh, you know, have to have uh, connections to, to hosting the games. Uh, you know, we need something independent for the taxpayers to, 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 to assess and consider. And of course, city council to ultimately make the decision in going forward. Um, you know, past games, uh, reports and information from past games, that's great to have economic data and, and, and cost benefit analysis prepared by professional organi organizations and then businesses. But I mean, uh, we need those questions before we can, I think the term used by city council is before we uh, lose that last exit ramp. Uh, we need mm. questions of these uh, questions, uh, answers to these questions. And 2026, you're right, you're accelerated. On, on a positive note, I, I am very much interested to hear what the revised plan is because I understand the revised plan consists of uh, making regional use of, of existing facilities as well as possibly reducing the number of uh, events, which means reduced number of uh, facility requirements for accommodations. So, I mean, uh, bumping it up to 2026 will change their, their, their business plan somewhat. So I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting to see what the proposal is uh, for that plan. Kevin Gonsi, the co-chair of the Golden Horseshoe Track and Field Council. If you want to burrow around uh, on the city's website, go look up City Hall Meetings, City of Hamilton Meetings. Look up today's agenda. You can find his report. It's worth a look. It's, uh, it's very interesting. Kevin, thanks for taking the time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Mike Fortune, a, a guy we love on this show who has been hosting and narr- not narrating and, and asking the questions. And anyway, he's free now. Mike has a night off. He has a Wednesday night off. Mike Fortune, what do you do with a Wednesday night off? Well, I can tell you, Scott, uh, I came back home. I've propped myself on my couch. I got a cold beer in my hand, and I'm watching the end of this council meeting right now. So uh, there we go, keeping updated and see, keeping informed. You were, I think you were doing really well in a lot of people's eyes until you got to the part where you say, and I tuned in to watch council. <laughs> well, I, I, I find all of this very fascinating. And I, I, just as I was tuning in, Councillor Partridge, um, she, she, you can see, hear and see some of the frustration that are coming upon these people. So she's already said she's going to be putting a motion forward that if this council meeting had started at 5.30 like it normally would, it'd be 2.30 in the morning and such. So it's really fascinating times how technology is helping, slowing things down, whatever the case might be. But because I get tonight off uh, early, Scott, I'm going to give you permission to take tomorrow night off at seven o'clock because we will uh, be rescheduling the virtual town hall to tomorrow night at 7 p.m. on cable 14. Folks can listen to it on 900 CHML and of course uh, on the city of Hamilton's YouTube channel. There you go. And will it also be on cable 14? Cable 14 as well, my man. Yes. Sorry. If you you said that, I missed it. I apologize. Okay. So you've been doing this now for, you've been doing these meetings on Wednesday nights for two months at Uh, least. I think it's 11 or 12 weeks now, give or take. It's been. Okay. Wow. What have you learned? I have a broad question. I know, but what have you learned? I have learned that the city of Hamilton's communications team is simply spectacular. They have looked at this at every angle and they are, I think, leading when it comes to municipalities in regards to getting the message out there. I have learned that community television and local radio is so important, and the fine folks at Cable 14 behind the scenes, I'm talking about the Bill Custers and the Bill Memes and the Brendans and, 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 uh, and all the guys, they have been able to pivot, they have been able to work, and they have been able to partner with the wonderful people like Clear Cable and such. Community television is so vital. I have also learned that these messages are so crucial and key on a weekly, daily, hourly basis, if you will, because I find people are still not getting the message, Scott. I don't know about your comings and goings, as as few as they've been, and mine have been very few as well. People are still not getting the message, and I think now with the warmer weather, um, you get that pent up energy, the the heat, and people are just starting to. I find now people are getting a little snarky. They were all pretty pleasant and friendly in the beginning, but it, it's going to be a very interesting, I would say, next four to six weeks how this continues to roll out. Well, I saw a tweet today from a, a colleague at the Spectator, and I agreed with it wholeheartedly. And that was uh, she was saying how sorry she felt for anybody who was now in an apartment or a home that didn't have air conditioning today. And you know, if it, and I agree, and I'm not even being funny. I mean, if you are now in a place that does not have air, it's going to be really, really hard not to get outside and not to be around people. And I don't blame you. I mean, it may not be the best thing, but if you're in there just broiling to death, I mean, your options aren't ideal and it becomes a really tricky situation. Your, your options aren't ideal, yet you can still follow the protocol and the procedure of physical distancing, wearing a mask, wearing a glove, find a shaded tree. And 
I, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be cooped up in an apartment. You know, uh, Paul Johnson, head of EOC, I, and his team, I think, have done a wonderful job. They've started to open up some cooling centers. I know, I think they're all downtown-based at this point. I'm, I'm assuming some might start to open up throughout the mountain. And that's what tonight's virtual town hall was going to be about. He, Paul will talk about it tomorrow, and I know he talked about it at council, is how is Hamilton going to slowly start to reopen? And here we've had this heat wave and some of those questions and answers were going to happen tonight on, on our virtual town hall as well, Scott. If the city promised grape popsicles for everybody who stayed home, they would deliver them to your door, you would have 100% acceptance rate. What counselor would you want to have those great uh, popsicles uh, delivered to you by? <laughs> you know, now see, off the air, I would have some witty comments. Uh, on the air, I think it's probably best just to say, it, let's just take any counselor. <laughs> that, would the, that would be the catch. But I don't know. I don't even know. Great popsicles are, 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 are in the budgets right now. You know, our municipality, municipalities across the country um, and, and beyond are just so financially strapped right now. This is going to be a real magic show that everyone is going to have to put together and pull that big rabbit out of that big hat. And as how, in regards to how we move forward a little bit, Scott. And you know, Mike, I, I know this conversation is, is pretty serious. I mean, it's a serious topic. I, I had no idea where it was going to go when we started talking today, but you know, it, it, let's just stay with that for one second, because one thing about this whole situation right now, and people who listen to this show regularly know that we've been talking about the economy a lot and money a lot. I am, I am honestly getting close to the end of my rope with people who continue to think or feel or whatever that we should just be able to keep spending forever and ever, and no one ever has to pay it back, and we shouldn't have to make any cuts to any programs, and there should... We are heading towards a time when realism is going to have to take over from idealism or hope that more programs can be done. And, you know, when you talk about these things about, you know, even we can't afford popsicles, you're probably right. And yet there's a lot of people who I don't think are grasping that concept yet. How Hamilton is 60 million or will be in another month or so, $60 million behind. I can't, I have no concept of what $60 million is, except that it's a darn lot of money. And with that said, you know, are they highballing that or are they lowballing that? We truly don't know what that overall number is. You start to see statistics. The HSR is down 72% in ridership. That's a huge chunk right there. You know, all the rec center programs are closed down. So, yes, to, to that point, how is this going to be paid back? You are, if you are going to be a counselor or thinking about running in the 2022 election, uh, you better have a very thick skin and you better start to come up with some ideas and concepts that will make sense and that you can promote and push during your campaign run because this is going to go well into 2022 and beyond. This will be a I, uh, topic. It's an interesting thing you mentioned about the 2022 elections. Uh, I, I'm now I know that there's one or two counselors who have already suggested whether they follow through or not, that they've already suggested that they're not going to be running again. I bet you there's maybe one or two more than we think who are going to go through the next little while and say, you know, I, I don't need this anymore. This is not, I know I signed up to work 
as a counselor and work hard, but this is not what I signed up for. I could easily see more turnover than we expect, just based on this. Well, and, and again, COVID-19 is just such a huge, uh, such a unique situation. And, and to your point, I, I agree. There, there may be that odd counselor or two or three that just said, you know what, this was a fun ride, but now I'm officially done. And, and whether it be the quote unquote, the, the old, some of the old guard councils saying this is enough, or maybe, or maybe some of the, the, uh, the fine folks that were just elected in the, the first, in this last term, it's really tough to say, you know, again, as I'm talking to you, I'm watching and Brenda Johnson's on right now. She just looks completely gassed. She's taking off her glasses, rubbing the bridge of her nose. Um, this is taking, and I think we also have to remember that I know there's the trolls on, on social media and such, and they all have their great grandioso ideas and plans and so on and so forth. And I might not always agree what counselors say and how they question experts, so on and so forth. But this is taking a toll on them. Don't let anyone think for an instance it's not. Um, yes, I know they're getting a nice paycheck, but this is a grind. And this is their biggest challenge that they have ever seen. So I also think to some extent there should be a little bit of kudos to what our government is doing here and trying to do to keep our city running uh, effectively and efficiently and safely on a regular basis. And if you think, Mike, and why I say I think that it wouldn't surprise me at all if we see some others decide to throw in the towel, if this is the grind, and I I don't disagree with you, wait till next year at budget time (laughs) when you now, because here's, here's a truism, and this is of every politician, this is not just of Hamilton politicians, Politicians like to say yes. Politicians do not like to say no. Politicians do not like to tell people that programs that they have been providing can no longer be provided because they know they're going to get blowback. And yet it seems to me inevitable, unbelievably inevitable that when it comes to budget time next year, there are going to have to be serious decisions made and some things that have been sacred cows are going to be cut and you, I, I don't want to necessarily be a city councilor or their personal assistants taking the phone calls from angry people because we're all fine with stuff being cut as long as it's not the stuff that matters to us. And but there's going to be stuff that matters to people and they are going to let those people have it, even though I don't think it's their fault. And as we all know, Scott, in politics, you cannot please everybody. And we know this is going to uh, affect a number of vulnerable uh, individuals, those that are homeless. This, I, I feel for the seniors. I feel for the the young children, the single moms. Uh, this is and this is going to land on the taxpayers at some point, and I'm sure we'll be into double digit tax increase hikes um, going into next year's budget. This is this is to me this is the opportunity, and, and you know we, we don't have enough time to go into this whole thing. And, and some people agree, some disagree with me on this one. But I have long been a proponent that uh, I'm a smaller government guy. I, I believe that there is certainly a role for government, but I believe that in more recent years, a lot of governments have become too overreaching and overarching and getting their tentacles into too many things. This could be a moment when we have to have to pull back and start saying, okay, what are the essentials that government is going to provide? And there's a lot of other things that if you want them, you're going to have to find a way to pay for them yourself. And, uh, and to, to, to that point, and, and I know this is probably not going to be popular in, in City Hall uh, years, 
but maybe also have to look in-house a little bit more as well. You know, where can we maybe cut internally to, to, to help this? You know, if we're willing, if, if, we're, if we want to be cutting here, we also have to be willing to cut internally possibly. And I think those are going to be some very, very difficult situations uh, or conversations, I should say, uh, for the people that do run our city. No kidding. And last hour, we were chatting with Aaron Rudrick, who is the head of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, about that very thing, not about Hamilton, but about how is it that the public service has largely gone untouched by this. I don't think that can possibly last. I don't think it can, because I think when we start trying to get ourselves out of this, not saying you have to cut jobs, but I think there are some people in the public service who are going to have to accept perhaps some pay cuts or something because this this is, um, yeah. uh, it just can't carry on forever like this. It just can't. But And again, I, I'm never one to, to begrudge anyone that has worked their way up the corporate ladder and have, has worked really hard to, to earn a very good salary. But you can start to, I think, look at that sunshine list there and say, okay, where can we start to to make some cuts? And maybe some of it's going to come through uh, fruition through through retirements anyway. Sure, just, sure. You know, who truly who truly knows? And again, I don't want to be around that horseshoe for those long, grueling budget meetings. Um, I'd prefer to sit here on my couch having a cold one watching it instead instead of making those decisions. With with the best hair in Hamilton though, even though he's just drinking beer and watching city council meetings still. Well, the hair the hair is done and still is. I haven't washed it out yet. So uh yeah, but I'll be I'll be raring to go again for tomorrow. It I got to tell you it's it's getting a little large, Scott. I, I don't know how much more I can really do before I, I go into some other look <laughs> or style to be honest with you. I, I might be going man bun eventually. You never know. You are going to move from Elvis's pompadour to Buster Poindexter's pompadour any moment now. And if people don't know who that is, uh, go look up a picture of him. He had a pompadour that was about the size of Sputnik, this is the Russian satellite. So I'm, I'm um, getting there, my man. I'm getting there. Let's get in there. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Apparently, there are a bunch of people who were very, very, very famous in their life, obviously who in their death, well, parts of their body went missing for a variety of reasons. And we're going to go through a few of them. I'm going to bring Will in. Will's back at the home office. I am broadcasting from the basement studio. At least I like to call it a studio. Don't really need to describe it. You can let your imagination. Just imagine the most glamorous basement studio ever. Uh, that's not it. Anyway, uh, I'm going to bring Will in. Cellar, eh? All, yeah, oh, wouldn't that be nice? Although, you know, and the acoustics in there would probably, if it was a wine cellar, like all stone and wood, it would probably be fantastic. Uh, not a wine cellar. Not a wine cellar. In fact, I'm I'm in, the, in my studio here at home is underneath the laundry room upstairs, which is fine until somebody in the family forgets that I'm on the air and starts the washing machine or the dryer. And suddenly it sounds like it's a hurricane down here. <laughs> yep. Te- text messages are quickly sent. Please laundry on the air. Stop, please. <laughs> um, anyway, going to bring Will in because uh, let's go through some of these. And some people may know some of these stories, but I find these very, very weird, Ben, uh, Ben, Will. Uh, <laughs> one, one of them. I, one of, one of those people who is back at the studio. Ben, Will, uh, Will, Lorraine. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Uh, Albert Einstein, who, I mean, there's not a person alive who doesn't know who Albert Einstein is. Do you know what part of Albert Einstein's body went missing, Will? I'm going to go with the brain. 
The brain is indeed the correct answer. The oh, wow. story is that a pathologist, after he passed away, wanted to learn the secrets of what made Albert Einstein so brilliant. And so he stole his brain and then began slicing it into all kinds, hundreds of slides that people could then look at and see if there was something there that gave a hint as to why Einstein was so famous. The problem was most of the slides, the story goes, ended up lost. He lost them. Oh, you've, no. got, you've got Einstein's brain. I mean, isn't that when we say nice move, Einstein? I mean, that, that fits exactly with the saying. Um, I think, and I stand to be corrected on this, but I believe that there is at least one slide or more of Albert Einstein's brain at McMaster University in the library. I believe that to be the case, and I can't for the life of me tell you why I think that or know that. Uh, if someone can confirm that, uh, that would be amazing because, um, but I think I, I do. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, and I will see if uh, anyone wants to write in radley at 900chml.com and tell me that I'm not just sitting down in this basement, sniffing dank air and now getting ridiculous. Uh, John F. Kennedy. A lot of people know this story about John F. Kennedy. Will, what part of John F. Kennedy went missing after his death? Oh, uh, man, you're making me look bad because I don't actually know. Uh, well, no, it doesn't make you look bad. It's, I mean, these are all things that are that are weird. So you, there's no good reason to know this. His brain was lost, which was... Very interesting because two reasons. One, of course, he was killed by being shot in the head. Naturally. Naturally. So the brain would be very important to this. But why this becomes so interesting is that, well, JFK is the, not personally, but his story, he is the father of conspiracy theories. All conspiracy theories began with the JFK assassination and continue with the JFK assassination. And his brain today, if you had it, might well be able to offer years and years and years later some real good evidence about where the bullet entered and left and you could probably put to rest or not the conspiracy theories. So it's very convenient that his brain went missing. Very convenient or very inconvenient. That's fuel to the fire um, right there. Of course it does. That's exactly my point. Is I, I, I do believe, and it's the only conspiracy that I can think of, it's the only conspiracy theory that I believe in. I don't believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I can't tell you who I think acted with him or who, how many others or anything like that. I just don't believe he could have done it himself. But was the government involved enough that they took JFK's brain and hit it? Well, I can't tell you that. But as you say, it certainly raises the specter that they were, even if they weren't, it's just an, if they weren't, it's an unfortunate thing that makes us believe that they were. All right. Uh, the, the, one this of those one days. is, this one is, uh, this one is very unusual. When Napoleon Bonaparte died, what part of his body went missing? Oh, geez. Um, his hands. Oh, you would wish. Oh no. Napoleon wishes that it was only his hands that had gone missing. Try again. All of his appendages? One appendage. Oh boy. Try again. <laughs> is this uh is this where the the little Napoleon comes from? Is that the yes. area we're going for? L little Napoleon went missing. Oh no. After he died, um 
And Who? the the re, so the, <laughs> the reason the story is, and I'm only going by the legend here. I I can't tell you if this is in fact true or not. I have not seen Little Napoleon, but apparently Napoleon was not. And the rumor, the story is that he was a tiny man. Um, others say no, he was of average height, but there was a part of him that was tiny. <laughs> mm. <laughs> So after his death, the story goes that little Napoleon left his body somehow, clearly someone extracted it and it began getting passed around where I'm not sure, but somehow ended up in the hands of an Italian priest. Now, okay. So what? yeah. How do you, how do you have the conversation where you just walk up to a priest and hand him little Napoleon and go here, father. What, how does, how does that exchange even happen? That's the uh, opposite of, of the crusade against all of the, the Grecian statues that one of the popes had. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh yeah. All the guys, I mean, the statue of David, poor David. Yeah, I know. Poor guy. Right. I'm, I'm sure that David was not like that. <laughs> and yet for all eternity now, everyone's like, wow, David, I mean, come on, man. Uh, well, Napoleon apparently was like an, a David. Um, anyway, he, this he Italian can't really judge that he has no blood left in there, right? I, I'm sure that um, it's very Costanza esque when the <laughs> I uh, when was the blood in the leaves. Pool. I, it was cold. <laughs> There's shrinkage. Um, but so anyway, somehow an Italian priest ends up with this thing. That that there is a book in there somewhere. How it goes from Napoleon's groin to an Italian priest's collection, no idea. Anyway, he then passes it on to a bookseller, as one does, because, I mean, honestly, if if you were either holding little Napoleon or little John Wayne Bobbitt, the first thing you do is give it to a priest, and then the priest naturally is going to give it to a bookseller who ended up giving it to the New York Museum of French Arts. <laughs> um, uh, uh, appropriate, I suppose. Uh, where it was described as, here's a quote, uh, I'm not making this stuff up, it was described as a shriveled eel. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, the whole story of Napoleon would have taken on such a different twist in history class if this had been what you learned about in grade 10 not whatever else uh anyway little napoleon was eventually sold at auction to an american urologist who's had it ever since huh and so if an italian priest having this in his possession is unusual if you're if you somehow get in get possession of this or come into possession of this how do you display such an item you're a urologist. Do you put it in your office? Do you have it on the wall? Did you just like nail it to the wall? <laughs> well, I mean, what's the, what's the appropriate. Anyway, I, I I'm, I'm, we're off track here, but it, I, I it does seem to me. I think that's the wrong word to use appropriate. That's the wrong word to use. There was nothing appropriate. <laughs> All right. Uh, Ludwig von Beethoven. What part of Beethoven would you guess went missing? I'm going to guess his cochlea to, uh, you know, to, to, uh, look at his deafness. That would, that, you know, that would be an exceptionally good guess. I, uh, not being a doctor, not even playing one on the radio. I don't know exactly what t body type, 
a cochlear, what it's made of. So I don't know if it would survive, mm. you know, like a bone or what. It, anyway, uh, not his cochlea, though. That one makes the most sense. No, apparently during his autopsy, his autopsy, they say, was botched. Oh. Beethoven's autopsy was a complete fiasco. And somehow his skull was smashed to bits. How? That's like that's a good hardest, question. Th- that's like the second hardest uh, bone in the body. Well, and not to be gross. I mean, I'm not trying to make anyone's dinner come up, but everyone knows how roughly what happens in an autopsy. But they saw your head if they're going to go after the brain. They don't take a sledgehammer to your head. And so, uh, how his brain, how his skull ended up in all kinds of anyway. Again, story is they glued it back together, or at least glued most of it back together. But 50 years later, a bunch of rogue scientists decided to dig him up to study his body. I'm telling you, weird history. And chunks of his skull were missing. So somewhere out there, someone has pieces of Beethoven's skull. There are many pieces now that have been donated to San Jose State University Center for Beethoven Studies. So most of his skull is there, but somewhere, if someone walks up to you on a street corner and goes, Hey buddy, you want to buy some of Beethoven's skull? (laughs) It could actually be true. It could actually be true. Um, you know, that, that actually begs a question that I've been having for, for a few years now, how many years does it take between it being labeled as grave robbing versus archeology? span That's a great question. That's a great question. And we're not even going to get to Hitler, which there's a fascinating story about, I mean, we know that, or at least we've always been told that Hitler committed suicide by shooting himself in the head right before the end of the war as the Russians were coming into Berlin. Well, the skull piece, they only found one small piece of a skull that had a bullet hole in it when the, when the Russians came, because then one, some of Hitler's people history tells us burned his body up, rolled up, rolled him in a carpet and then burned him up so that he wouldn't be able to be captured by the Russians. Um, but the skull piece that the Russians have years ago, they let the Americans take a look at it to study it. And it turned out that it was actually the skull of a 14 year old or 20 year old girl. Oh, so the, 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 the skull piece of Hitler that apparently proves that he committed suicide wasn't really his doesn't mean he didn't commit suicide just means that's not the one. Speaking of Hitler, Benito Mussolini, number of years ago, very recently, because it involves eBay, um, his granddaughter was shocked a number of years ago when she saw his blood and brain for sale on eBay. What? <laughs> yeah. So the seller was looking for $22,000 for Mussolini's blood and brain. I mean, if I had $22,000 to spend willy-nilly, hey, why not? Well, Michael Jackson tried to buy the bones of the elephant man, so why not buy the blood and brains of Benito Mussolini? And then what you do with it, again, how do you display this stuff? What do you do with this stuff? You put uh, it Charlie in a jar ja- and, and you, have the, uh, yeah. you have the sticker that says, this machine kills fascists. And <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, uh, Harry, Harry, uh, Charlie Chaplin, pardon me. The opposite of Mussolini. In 1977, he was buried in a Swiss cemetery, but you talk about grave robbing. Three months later, he was dug up and the grave robbers called his widow and demanded a $600,000 ransom to have his body back. What? How do you? (laughs) After we finish talking today, Will, I'm going to go to my wife 
and let her know that if ever I become famous enough that somebody would dig up my body and hold my body for ransom afterwards, tell them you can have it. It's soon going to smell bad if it isn't already. And Scott's done with it. So knock yourself out. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't need it anymore at that point. Um, call it an archeological dig. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they reunited his body with his grave and he was buried properly. And, uh, and there you go. Geronimo, you know who Geronimo was? Not off the top of my head, no. Well, he was, he's the guy that you, you scream his name when you jump into a pool, but he was also a Native American leader. And this story gets really weird because Geronimo, everybody knows the word Geronimo or the name Geronimo. His body, what part of his body do you believe was stolen? Hmm. Entire head? Entire body. Oh, but, uh, of course, you know, there's only bones left because he's from, oh, I don't even know when Geronimo lived, but it, anyway, um, at Yale university, there is a, an infamous group called the order of skull and bones. You ever heard of it? A lot of famous people have been involved in this thing, including George W. Bush, no, George H. W. Bush's grandfather. So is this like a, a Freemason type deal or? Kind of. I think it's a secret society at Yale that no longer exists. I believe they got rid of it. Anyway, they somehow conspired to steal the bones of Geronimo to brag against some other secret group, I guess, because that's how you get bragging rights. And um, for a long time, story is they had Geronimo's skull in their clubhouse. <laughs> of I, course. I, yeah. Yeah. Of course. That's how you go through life, honestly. <laughs> okay. Uh, two more. One, this person, um, who are we going to do here? Yeah, let's do this one. Uh, Walt Whitman, famous oh, yeah. poet, very famous poet. What part of Walt Whitman do you think went missing? Uh, I'm over three with hands, but uh, hands. No, you were much better off when you were just sticking with brains. <laughs> <laughs> I so, was hoping it wouldn't be that, but. Well, so Walt Whitman, um, who was a counterculture icon and he was a poet and, you know, people know who Walt Whitman is. Um, they, for some reason, they decided to use his brain. There was a, a guy who was a scientist, a, apparently a terrible scientist by the name of Edward Spitzka. Don't know anything about him, but apparently he was a little, ooh. And he decided he was going to use Walt Whitman's brain to prove one of his theories that was a link between brain size and intelligence. Now that's not altogether uncommon. A lot of people over the years have thought bigger brains must mean more intelligent, but anyway, um, somehow this guy, this, this scientist Spitzka, uh, he, he was not, it was not just a benign kind of study. He was interested in eugenics and phrenology and other kinds of things, which we don't really want to get into that kind of pseudoscience. Anyway, somehow he got Walt Whitman's brain to do this study with. He wanted to study it, but it had been preserved. Something had been done with it. It was hardened by the time that Spitzka got his hands on Walt Whitman's brain. Like calcified? Uh, I guess. I'm not really sure. It had to be really hard because somehow Spitzka not only got his brain, but had butterfingers and dropped the brain on the floor, oh, no. at which point it broke into a million pieces. Oh, that, that really is young Frankenstein-esque. I made that You've shattered earlier. Walt Whitman's brain. How, um, how do you live that down? Yeah. Oh, can we have the brain back? Ooh, it's in the vacuum bag. 
<laughs> I mean, really. It just makes the sound of like delicate china every time you pick it up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What am I stepping on? Walt Whitman. <laughs> um, there was a poem in there. And okay, last one. Uh, let's go with, uh, Joseph Haydn, very famous composer. One of the most famous composers of all time as well. Uh, again, thieves and scientists trying to prove phrenology that science, uh, that, that your head size and brain size predicts intelligence. Um, yeah, they, they dug him up and his head and brain and skull have never been found. It is now the rest of his body, I guess is there, but, uh, Haydn's head is, Haydn. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. Uh, that one just sort of popped out. Uh, anyway, yeah, weird history day here on the Scott Radley Show. Uh, but again, if if I'm dead and gone and become famous enough, someone wants to steal my body, it's okay. I mean, I'm I'm uh, I've used it up for all I'm going to use it. Don't pay a ransom for it. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.